Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and the moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, November 29, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, November 27th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,867. That's 15867. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,869. That's 15869. This morning, A Vision for You presents Love and Tolerance is Our Code. The purpose of the big book is to change your life through a 12-step process of personal transformation leading to a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. The basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous reminds us that as individuals aiming to live a long and happy life in recovery, that love and tolerance of others is our code. The dictionary defines a code as a set of conventions governing behavior or activity. So in plainer terms, the big book is saying that love and tolerance of others are what guide our actions and behavior. It sounds simple and clear enough, but this is not always easy. The AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions says that the principles in the 12 Steps are perfect ideals. They are goals towards which we look and strive and the measuring sticks by which we estimate our progress. We are by no means expected to be perfect, but we are asked to strive towards these benchmarks. We are not expected to always get it right, but we are asked to do our best to live in a way that shows love and tolerance of others is our code. In fact, the big book goes even further to say our very lives as ex-problem drinkers, as ex-problem compulsive overeaters for you and I, depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Our lives in recovery depend on this formula. The concept may sound simple, although sometimes it is no small task. However, it is a very small price to pay for freedom from compulsive overeating and a joyful, meaningful, purposeful life in recovery. Joining us today to elaborate on the topic of love and tolerance is our code is Melissa C., a beloved recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Melissa is devoted to our 12-step way of life and always eager to carry the message of hope and recovery. And it's with great appreciation that I welcome Melissa to the line. Good morning, Melissa. Hi. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everybody. Um, really a pleasure to be here this morning. My name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York in the Hudson, the beautiful Hudson Valley area of New York State. And um, 
you know, so so before I really like get started on this topic of love and tolerance, um, you know, just to sort of do this quick qualification, um, I am um, uh, recovered. It's it's about seven years um, since I've lived in this recovered state of um, something that plagued me my entire life. I struggled with um, my eating, with my weight, with my food, with my diets, with um, with living, really. I had a living, I had a tremendous living problem. Um, and, you know, the real physical demonstration of it was it showed up in my life as morbid obesity. And that was really painful and visible. And I would have periods of time where I could um, somehow muster up the strength and diet my way down for a little bit, but the desire to eat never left me, and I always wound up going right back into the food, and I would regain everything that I'd lost, and I had done this over and over and over and over again, Um, and when I, you know, I came into Overeaters Anonymous, um, it wasn't just one time and I got recovered, I came in, I got some little pieces of information, so and I had the answer that I could put in my pocket and leave, and um, and so, of course, that way doesn't work. And, and I repeated this as well a few times until I reached a point where it became really clear to me <clears throat> it wasn't about the food. <laughs> it wasn't about the food, and it wasn't about the eating. It was about a spiritual malady. It was something really broken and wrong with me inside. And and that was the point where I no longer cared um, about the food at all anymore. I just wanted to be free. I knew I couldn't live with it, and I couldn't live without it. And thank you, God, I, I heard you guys. You know, I, it was really about that time that I reached a, just a horrendous level of my life um, and yet I had, like, lots of things that looked like I should be happy. Had the two kids, husband, job I really enjoyed, a home, uh, you know, an extended family. Um, but I was miserable. And around that time, I um, tuned in and I heard this phone meeting. <laughs> and my initial reaction was I heard the word recovered and I was um horrified, disgusted, and intrigued, right? And I was like, how dare they? What did they just say? Huh? Like, um, and, and I found myself listening more and more, and I decided at that point I was going to do whatever these people, whatever you people were doing, because I wanted what I heard. And, you know, and it was funny because I hadn't even seen you, right? I hadn't even seen you, and yet I knew by your voices, that you were living um, the way that I wanted to live. And I began just doing whatever I was directed to do, um, and, um, and I recovered, right? I recovered fast, and, um, and my life has been miraculously transformed, right? And so this morning I'm really going to talk about this concept of love and tolerance, um, which is really one of my favorite topics, and... Um, and it's really near and dear to my heart. You know, I um, I love this idea of love and tolerance. It just sounds so beautiful. And, and it really is aligned with who I know I am inside, who I've always been inside. You know, um, I have a lot of ideas, right, about love and tolerance. But this book is 
really clear about what this means. You know, I've always thought of myself as loving and tolerant, but it was in theory, right? And it was in this global, idealistic way. So I would look at the world and and say, you know, um, and, and believe that I was really tolerant of others, um, but I wasn't. You know, I, I I didn't practice it. It was the same way that I would say I loved I loved the earth, right? But I would throw my my trash out the window of my moving car because I didn't want anyone to see my my candy wrappers. So, and it was sort of the same way with this idea of being tolerant. Um, and that I think is part of being an addict that we may have lots of principles and lots of ideas, but. I don't have the power. I lack the authority to live in agreement with my own morals and codes. And, and you know, that's why I need God, and that's why I need a set of directions that bring me closer to my God. So, you know, we're told um, in the big book in no uncertain terms that we have to have love and tolerance, and it's pretty specific about the things that we have to have tolerance for. And, you know, before I get started and and begin really picking out from the big book what sections to look at, um, I want to acknowledge that this is very different from the way other people have to live. You know, so if ever for a moment I start drifting into the land of this isn't fair, right? Why do I have to be tolerant of this, right? That's not fair. I need only to remind myself that I'm the addict. I'm an addict and that I came to this conclusion in step one. I made a crucial diagnosis that I'm different and that I am separate. I am a distinct entity. And, you know, like right in the doctor's opinion, it says that we are set apart as a distinct entity. And what I found very helpful is to take a piece of paper and I fold it in half. And on one half of the paper are all the people in the world who can eat what they like, they eat when they like. They get ease and comfort from normal amounts of food. They can tell small or large lies. They don't have to take inventories. They don't have to make amends. They can get mad. They can hold grudges. Then they don't have to develop tolerance and love for the things that disturb them. And then I live on the other side of the paper. There's me. I live on this side of the page. And in, in the book, I, um it tells me that I'm not like other men. And so because I'm not like other people, I don't have to worry about what seems right for others. I just know my step one understanding tells me this is the way that I have. This is the way that I have to live. And I remember, you know, when I first started hearing that I was going to have to accept many things that I found upsetting. Uh, You know, early on in recovery, I learned that my serenity and happiness were directly reliant on how easily I came to accept things that I found upsetting. And I was directed, you know, even before I got into the big book, I was directed to that well-known page of the big book, and depending on which, ver- you know, which um, which edition you have, um, you know, it, it's, it's like what, page 417, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, or thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept 
that person, place, or thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. And, you know, again, I understood this in theory, but somehow actually experiencing this internally was not simple. You know, accepting things that upset me is one thing on paper, but to really do this, like, how? You know, I didn't know how. And and all the rest of the world, by the way, seems to thrive and feed on picking sides and and forming positions, you know. And, and more and more I, I'm seeing it, you know, happening around me, the country and the world. And even my family at times feels polarized. You know, people choose sides and they argue their points. And, you know, they choose what newspapers to buy, what channels to watch, who, you know, which politicians to, to hang their hats on. Um, and, you know, for someone like me, I have to be comfortable with people on both sides as much as possible. And I need to find myself unattached to the outcomes. I actually have to find myself living in the middle. You know, and, and so with that in mind, I'm going to define tolerance, right? And tolerance is, one, the ability or willingness to tolerate something, right, to withstand something, in particular, the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. And then, two, the capacity to endure continued subjection to something, and it's usually in terms of a drug, maybe maybe a, a transplant, like an organ transplant or an antigen, or some environmental conditions without having adverse reaction. And so now, with that in mind, let's jump in and we can get started really picking apart what we have to be tolerant of. And, and I have, you know, I'm a list lover, so I have like a short list of what the big book tells us that we need to tolerate. And number one, I have to have tolerance of views that are different. And in um, the chapter, there's a solution on page 19 through 20. It says, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument we shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs, right? So part of being tolerant is that we're told to stay out of controversy, you know, staying away from medical debates and and maybe psychiatric opinions. So, you know, I, I have to stay away from political discussions with people who have different views. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have opinions and principles, right? Of course we have opinions and principles. And I have my ideals, right? Um, but these are the ideals that I ask God to help mold. And, you know, and when God is molding my ideals, sometimes it hurts just a little bit. 
it's just I feel a little bit of that pressure as my ideals get molded, they get sort of shaped. And I know that my ideals can't be concrete. They can't be formed in concrete. They have to be um, more malleable. It's got to be almost clay-like, you know. My ideals get molded as I as I learn and grow. And I can live in agreement with my ideals. In fact, I must, right? And God gives me the strength to do this. I can do this and still stay away from controversy. And, you know, what I found out is that um, as, a, as a recovered person, as, as a woman um, in recovery who has a serious addiction, controversy is not my platform, right? I have a very small platform, and it's not controversy. I have to stay off hot topics, you know, and it's not so easy when family members have political views that disturb me, you know. So what does that look like? I don't argue politics with my mother-in-law or other people, my sister, my mother-in-law. Um, and these days, for me, it means I, I have to sort of stay off Facebook and other forms of social media um, because we're not meant to be argumentative or opinion, opinionated, you know. And I am not perfect by any means. I have made mistakes here. But I know my very life depends on my ability to find love in my heart rather than win an argument. Um, And I don't argue with colleagues, right, about educational philosophies. And, And I have strong opinions here, but I can't argue with people. It's not good. It's not, um, it doesn't benefit me, and it certainly doesn't benefit them. And I don't, you know, and so I don't get into it with my boss, and I don't argue with my union reps. I I steer clear of controversy. And it doesn't mean I'm weak or I'm stupid because I don't focus on the problems. I see the problems just like anybody else. I'm not blind, and I'm not stupid, and I'm not weak. And what I found out is that it actually requires extreme discipline to stay out of the chatter. You know, God gives me that strength. And, and if colleagues or, or people think I'm weak and stupid or uninformed, then it's okay, right? I'm a big girl. <laughs> and I might not like being disliked and not respected, but I can tolerate, and here's that important word, the discomfort I feel when I'm not liked. See, I learned that tolerance doesn't just mean that I stomach other people, like I somehow, ugh, I can tolerate them. No, it's I can tolerate my own discomfort. I've built it up. I'm not quite as sensitive to my own discomfort. Um, You know, so number two, what else are we tolerant of? We're tolerant of varying religious views and even my own, at times, inadequate conceptions of God. And in We Agnostic, on page 49 through 50, it says, we used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices when we might have observed that many spiritually-minded persons of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness, which we should have sought ourselves. Instead, we looked at the human defects of these people 
and sometimes used their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant ourselves. We missed the reality and the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of the trees. We never gave the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. And then in the appendix, you know, the spiritual experience, in the back of the book, it says most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. So I need to be tolerant of other religious perspectives. Um, and um, I should not look with an eagle eye, right, to find hypocrisy in in religious people, right? That's just um, not helpful. In fact, I need to overlook intolerance in others, right? So if I see people who, to me, seem like, oh, they're so intolerant, I actually have to have tolerance for them as human beings. Um, you know, family members, for me, are a great place to start. <laughs> I see them. I, I can be judgmental, right? And I look at them and I say, oh, they're so intolerant. They're so prejudiced. And and yet what I find is that I'm judging them. It's my judgmentalism. And, and my work is to overlook this so I can see their gifts and their good characteristics. And intolerance is an obstacle to finding God. And if I'm to find God, I need to be willing to see him in all places. Um, number three, I have to be tolerant of being offended. You know, um, <laughs> to not get my feelings hurt so easily. And, and how it works on page 66 to page 67, it says, Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. And we asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And then on page 70 in How It Works, it says, if we've been thorough, about our personal inventory. We've written down a lot. We've listed and analyzed our resentments. We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. So it's a waste of time and it's deadly for me, right? We've commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have commenced, um, we have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We've listed the people we've hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. So I have a really close friend in, in program, my friend Janet. She she taught me early on. Um, I had brought, like, a resentment to her, and she um, she helped me reword it and and to reframe the sick man's prayer. Um, to be the spiritually developing man's prayer. And I just, to me, I just love that. If I can view people as spiritually developing rather than sick, because I used to sort of say it like this, they're sick, they're sick. And there was a lot of judgment in, in my tone there. I wasn't looking at them as as 
sick as needing um, help. I was looking to them as though they were less than me, as though somehow I was morally superior to them. And and so if I can look at them as spiritually developing, um, you know, I sort of took that and I ran with it. And I thought, okay, if I can look at them as developing like a child, like a toddler, if I can see them in this perspective, I'm far less to, likely to get angry or even to think myself superior. You know, I, I think of um, I think of people who disturb me as developing, and, and it's like, like this, right? I, I think like my children were once toddlers, right? And they did things that if a grown person did, I might get angry and judge. But we kind of expect toddlers to act in a certain way, and we don't get mad. You know, when someone disturbs me, um, I envision them as a toddler and truly like a developing child. And, and if I can do that, I can find a pocket of compassion. And I can feel myself release the anger, and my heart softens. You know, I try to remind myself that, that they're children of God just like me. And, and they were one time young children. Right? Anybody who's upsetting me today, at one time they were young children. You know, and, and maybe they were young children who were hurt, right? And and I learned hurt people hurt people. Um and and this is especially effective for me when I find myself upset with my husband. Um, you know, I'm gonna talk about it in practical terms. Um if I'm able to actually envision him like a little child, you know, and I've got I've got one in mind, and there are these photos of him that are in his mom's house, and there's this one photo in particular of him um, when he was about seven or eight, which you know coincidentally was was the age he was when his dad died, um, and it's also the age of. Um, second graders, which I've taught, you know, for 24 years. So I've got like this soft spot for, for a seven and eight year old. Um, and, and for my husband in particular, in this photo, he has this, this sweet smile, this little boy smile, and he's missing his top teeth. And he's in this like, God awful plaid, like leisure suit, you know, of like the early seventies. And, um, so when he says or does something I can find disturbing and irritating, you know, I can picture him as that little boy who might have just lost his dad or was in the midst of losing his dad, and he was still somehow dressed up. Somehow his mom slapped a suit on him, and my husband put a smile on his face. And, you know, and so when he does things that disturb me, I remember that I love this man and he was that little boy once. And, you know, and if I can't do that for him in that particular moment, then I can just think of him as a silly second-grade little boy who I seem to have a lot of patience for, right? Just for whatever reason, God gave me a wealth of patience for other people's second-grade little, little children. Um, you know, number four, what else am I tolerant of? I'm tolerant of my family members' imperfections. Um, and in, into action on page 83, it says, 
yes, there's a period, a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fit the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and, frankly, analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring, but their chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought to not urge them. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. That's really hard for me. (laughs) I'll just put that in there. Um, They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone. And then in the chapter working with others, to further like build on this concept, on page 98, though his family may be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault-finding are to be avoided like the plague, right? And we think about the lengths that we're going to right now to avoid this pandemic, this plague. I have to at least go that far with argument and fault-finding. Um, to wives on page 118, your husband knows he owes you more than sobriety. He wants to make good, yet you must not expect too much. His ways of thinking and doing are the habits of years. Patience, tolerance, understanding, and love are the watchwords. Show him these things in yourself, and they will be reflected back to you from him. Live and let live is the rule. If you both show a willingness to remedy your own defects, there will be little need to criticize each other. So what does that mean, these these readings? What does this exactly mean? It means I need to lead my family and refrain from criticizing my family members. If I'm cleaning house with the family, right, I'm not urging them to find their part. I don't point out the mess on their side of the street. You know, I don't talk incessantly about spiritual matters, but rather I live it. And and I said before, like, that's not so easy for me. Sometimes I do find myself doing a lot of God talk, and I'm reminded I better do some more God walk, right? Um, because my family... They don't want to hear me go on and on about God. They just don't. Um, And they kind of like, I see them, they kind of roll their eyes. They make a funny face um, because it's my actions that they hear. You know, nobody wants to hear me talk about my values if I'm not living them. You know, um, I have to remember, here's another really important thing for me, um, and maybe it will apply to you. I have to remember that my kids, And my husband are not my sponsees. You know, one of the harms that I did early in recovery was I tried to teach my daughter how to find her part every time she had an issue. You know, I treated her like she was going to do a 10-step. And, you know, so what's the problem there? Well, first of all, she's not an addict. And second of all, I'm not her sponsor, right? 
She didn't come to me for that. I'm her mother. She came to me with a problem, and rather than, like, lovingly hear her, I tried to fix her, you know, and the kinder thing is to actually take her part, not to make her see her part, you know. Um, And what happened was she told me a few years ago um, that she felt like, I I had said to her at one point, um, it hurt me, I said, um, you don't really talk to me much these days. You're so distant from me. You you, you kind of, I feel shut out. Um, and, you know, what, what, what's going on? You know, and she said, you know, I feel like I just can't share my problems with you. And, and that, I mean, it hurt to hear her say that because um, I hear lots of people's problems and why can't my own girl share her problems with me? Um, but it was because, and she told me, she said, you never take my side. Um, and she was right. I always took everyone else's side. That's what she said, that in pointing out to her what her part was, she felt like I was taking everybody else's side. And that's hurtful, you know, for, for a young girl to come to their mom with a problem and for her to feel like I didn't have her back. Um, so I might have been talking about these principles, but I wasn't demonstrating them because, you know, my ideals tell me my job as mama, right, is to be, is to be her, is to, like, be her right-hand man. And, no, I'm not going to agree with her when I know she's clearly wrong, but it's not my job to point out all of her, you know, mistakes along the way. And, Thankfully, what I've learned to do these days, um, not always perfectly, right? I'm still a work in progress. But when my children or my husband come to me with a problem, I now try to ask them, are you looking for my feedback or do you just want me to hear you? Do you just want my, my love and comfort? And sometimes they say, um, we ju- I just want to be heard. And sometimes I hear it more like this. No, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> and when I hear it like that, I know, mm, no, they don't. <laughs> they want to hear what they want to hear. Um, and that's okay, too. I have to have tolerance for, for where they are as well, right? Um, which brings me to number five, tolerance for the still sick and suffering. And um, in working with others on page 89, right, So we're going to talk now about the fellowship and people that are still sick and suffering. And in the chapter, Working with Others, it says, because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. So obviously when we come to these rooms, um, you know, we're pretty mangled. I mean, I could speak for myself. You know, we're not so easy to like all the time. Um, and and so maybe that's where, like, a sponsor might feel like, I don't think I particularly like this person so much. And that's okay. Like, I know when I came, I was filled with self-pity. Like, I was so sad and so negative. I was, I was like a great big downer, you know, and especially in early, optim- you know, abstinence. When I put the food down, I was not cheerful and optimistic, you know. 
I I questioned everything. I was questioning, you know, some of it because I really wanted to know, and I still thought that lack of knowledge was my dilemma, you know. And some of it was I questioned because I was still, you know, bristly and and wanted my own way. And and I also lied by omission. I did that a lot, you know. And if the fellow were to take my demeanor at that time personally or been angry by my resistance, for me, that would have added another obstacle to the path of getting well. And thankfully, I wasn't greeted that way. You know, so when I'm fortunate to meet a person who might need help, I am to be tolerant and loving and not judge them by the same requirements and standards that one might judge if we're in the business of judging anyway. But if we were to judge, you know, I I can't, like, measure them up against a fully healthy person. That would be really unfair. You know, we're told we got to cut them some slack and show them through our own recovery, right? Just keep demonstrating. Um, Number six, tolerance for unhealthy eating and drinking habits, right, in others, right? And in working with others, page 102 through 103, it says many of us keep liquor in our own homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided they're not alcoholic. But some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. We feel that each family, in light of their own circumstances, ought to decide for themselves. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. You know, so we don't show intolerance or hatred of eating, right, of food as an institution. Experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. And remember, right, we're supposed to be helpful. That's my, that's my charge now. And every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we're not witch burners, right? They, they're like, oh, thank God you're not a witch burner. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good, for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. So I have tolerance of others' eating behaviors and other people's food plans, right? I have to have tolerance for that. By the way, I'm not anti-sugar, right? I'm not the anti-sugar police. Um, I'm not the anti-anything police. I know I know what I don't eat, right? I know what I can eat. I know how I can eat. Um, I know there are professionals, that there's nutritionists and doctors who are qualified to help people. And I'm happy to help when asked, but again, I don't police people. Um, And when people call me and ask me my experience and ask me specific food-related questions, I try to, like, hang back a second and hear where they're coming from because I don't want to be a witch burner. I don't want to lead with food as the solution, right, because this is a spiritual program, you know. And and so on another thing, when I'm with people who are eating, I don't turn up my nose in superiority. You know, in fact, 
I've been at events, you know, prior to this period of time, we used to go to lots of events and holiday dinners, and and I would, you know, find myself sitting next to someone whose plate would be piled high, and, you know, and people who know me know that, you know, many years ago, I was really heavy and large, and now I'm not, and so they look at me and they say, oh, you know, they'll look at my plate, their plate is piled high, and they'll say something like, oh, you're always so good, right, I'm being bad, and I make sure to say um, that this is, an, this is not a morality issue, right, uh, that they're not being bad, right, they're eating, eating is not bad, they're not they're not murdering someone. And I might even say it in that, like, jokey way, like, what? wait, is there somebody you murdered on your plate? Like, you're not being bad. And I try to say it in that way just so that they're comfortable with me, you know. I might even say to them, mm, that looks delicious, enjoy. You know, I'm not intolerant of other people's eatings, even if they seem to have this disease. In fact, I'm even more likely to make sure they don't feel uncomfortable about eating in front of me. Why? Why do I have to be that way? Because, well, if they really have this disease, this condition, right, which they might not have, they might just be an eater, right? But in the event that they do have this condition, you know, feeling uncomfortable about eating in front of me, well, that won't be enough to get them to stop because I was uncomfortable eating in front of lots of people. That didn't get me to stop. That's human power, right? And what will they do if they have this problem and I make them uncomfortable to be around me eating? They'll simply avoid me, you know? And then how can I possibly be helpful to someone who avoids me? So, you know, this is easy with people who are not, really super close to me it's not so easy with my own children right with my own kids it's been a work in progress and partly because a mom's job is to keep her family healthy to the best of her ability you know but I have to remind myself at this point my kids are 13 and 19 and I can encourage healthy eating and a clean lifestyle I can demonstrate it but I can't actually enforce it you know so what do I do right? How, how do I love them? I don't forbid any food from being eaten. They can eat whatever they want, but I don't voluntarily buy junk food. I just don't. You know, um, if I go to the store, um, I'm coming home with healthy options, you know, unless I'm asked specifically for a food item. You know, they they, they might ask me very specifically and I'm bringing specifically that item, you know. So I don't just surprise them with ice cream. Like, that's just not my thing. You know, I'll, I'll leave that up to Dad. And, but if I'm asked to buy it, then I do. And for me, this is how I can bo- be both loving and tolerant. And, and I have to say, though, these days, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this a little bit. It is a work in progress, you know. Um, both my kids really seem to love sweets. They really seem to love sweets and fatty and carb-rich foods, and and I know it negatively impacts them. You know, both of them have some other underlying health issues, and um, and I know that sugar is not good for them. 
that if I police their eating, then I'm creating a bigger problem, right? Um, so what do I do? You know, what do I do? A lot of 10 steps, you know, and I may fall short of my ideals. And I have to say that my family tells me that even when I'm not commenting, I make a certain face. I have a very expressive face. Um, and so if my expression is one of judgment, then I can make amends for that. I do have control over my, my face. And and I'm reminded to practice love and tolerance, right? Number seven, here we go. Tolerant of sponsees and possible sponsees' struggles and questions. So in in working with others on page 94, it says, make it clear then that he is not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off. First, he has helped you more than you've helped him. If your talk has been sane, quiet, full of human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend. He may rebel, and then it goes on to say, he may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. And then on page 95, it says, if he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. But point out that we alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly. So as we work with others, we cannot be overly sensitive and upset by the difficulties you know, they encounter trying to work this program. Um, if I got worked up and intolerant every time a sponsee or potential sponsee questioned the way I did, you know, why is it necessary to do something? Or if I took it personal every time I lost a sponsee to the food or a diet scheme, I would lose my enthusiasm for doing this work. And um, you know, and beyond that, we're we're specifically told to be friendly. It, it really is in here many times. Um, you know, and and t- friendly means loving, right? And I can be friendly. By the way, I can be friendly and refuse to negotiate over the course of action. They're not mutually exclusive. I don't, I don't argue. You know, I don't have to argue. I can be kind. You know. Um, and for me, what I do when people argue over what they will and won't do, I just kind of let them say everything they need to say. And then I might say, it sounds like you know exactly what you need, and it doesn't sound like it's what I have to offer. And, you know, and yet I can still be loving towards them, you know, and why should we go beyond just being tolerant but also loving towards someone who won't work the program or decides to do something else? Because remember it says to be useful. To be useful is my only aim. And I don't know when I'm going to be called on to be useful. I might think it's today, but it might not be until 10 years from now. So, you know, and so I can be useful perhaps in the future. Or maybe it'll never be me that's going to be useful with this person. But I don't want to sour them towards the 12 steps. You know, um, if and when they ever decide they need OA, if I lead things friendly, then I'll be a safe place for them to reach back out. 
And, and for me, that has been my experience. I've met many people along my path who weren't ready when I first met them um, and then eventually were ready, you know. And, and I, I think many of us have had that experience. Now, I, I want to say that I can be loving and tolerant towards the person, and that doesn't mean I'm not clear and direct about how we can recover. Uh, you know, I can love a person and set boundaries and guidelines. And in fact, you know, since I did mention parenting, any parent knows that to be true. A loving parent sets boundaries and guidelines, and we tolerate our own discomfort as the people around us don't like the boundaries and guidelines. You know, and, and for me, even more, that's the demonstration of God's way. Um, page uh, num- number eight, the eighth thing, love and tolerance as my code, right? And this is really like, ah, that's the best. This is my guiding principle. That's what a code is. As Leah said in the very beginning, our code. Um, you know, into action on page 84, it says, this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit, right? I want to, like, just take that in, that we're in the world of the spirit, and our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So, And that really, that's my favorite line of all. Um, love and tolerance of others is my code. You know, it's my code. It's my policy. It's my protocol. You know, it's, it's my mission statement, right? My standard operating procedure. So, uh, you know, if you notice, my code, our code, not justice and fairness, right? My code is not right versus wrong. And we're told here that we get to live in the fourth dimension, right? That we enter the world of the spirit, right? So we're living in a different world. And the world of the spirit has different laws and different codes than the world of the physical, Right, And so for me, right, in this world of the spirit, I get, I get like a, I have a whole new life experience. I get to somehow have no desire for the foods that once owned me. Like that's part of what happened when I entered this world of the spirit. In this world of the spirit, I have no more weight problem. Like I go into my closet season after season, and I never have to hold my breath and say, will this dress fit me? Will these pants button up? Right? That's one, that's one of the beautiful gifts I get in this world of the spirit. Right? Um, I have serenity, even in calamity. That's another gift that we get in the world of the spirit, that things might be going horrendously wrong around me, and somehow I'm serene right? I have a relationship with my creator. This this concept, this thing 
this powerful force that I didn't even believe in when I entered, that I hated at one time, and now I have a relationship. I have, I have a feeling like it's my best friend. You know, okay, so I get all these things, but guess what? I want to live in this world, then I also have a code, and I have this code I have to follow. And I need to have tolerance of others, and, and I need to tolerate, to build up my sensitivity to my own discomfort, right? That might get stirred up when others do what they do. And I can think about tolerance like the way people build up a tolerance to medications, right? Or like how some of us build up a tolerance to substances, right? Took a lot more for us to take in just to get to zero, right? So I have tolerance now for the for things that might have once upset me. I don't get as easily affected by it. And that's what I aspire to be, less affected by others and my own discomfort. You know, I, I've been extremely sensitive. Um, I soak up the moods of others like a sponge. That's what life was like for me before. The moods and the habits of everyone seem to affect me personally. So if I were in a room and people were unhappy about something entirely unrelated to me, by the way, I would take it personally. Somehow it was either because of me, and that I found out was self-centered to the core, or it was my job to fix it so I could feel better again. And again, self-centered to the core. So today when I'm disturbed, I need to call upon my willpower, that this is good use of the will. And I use my willpower to relieve me of thinking about me. And as I practice love and tolerance, I'm thinking of others. I meditate on love, right? That's one of the things I, that I've learned to do is to meditate on love. And, um, and when my mind drifts to my agenda, I can gently redirect my thinking back onto others. And I was taught in one of my meditations to think of, of it like training a puppy to stay. You know, I, I sort of tell this puppy in my brain, stay, stay on love. And, and it stays for a minute, and then it begins to wander off, right, kind of like that little puppy. And I gently pick it up, and I put it back where it should be. But I don't have to beat the puppy, right? I don't have to beat the puppy. I, I also pray and ask God to increase my tolerance and decrease my self-centered sensitivity. And what I found out was that, you know, God in this, in living in the world of the spirit, what he's done is he takes my defects and he reshapes them. So God took my sponge-like sensitivity and he reshapes it into compassion and empathy. And, but this is when I allow him to and when I cooperate. You know, if I can circle back for a moment before I end and just touch on that idea of acceptance is the answer to all my problems, because that was like one of my earlier things that I learned but I didn't understand or couldn't figure out how to do it. You know, acceptance was so difficult in the beginning, and what has happened more and more is that I can accept because I know that God is in control of the outcomes. I, I, it will all unfold. 
exactly as he sees fit. I see it happening right now. Circumstances that I thought were unacceptable, God somehow has turned into a great gift. I mean, I know for myself, and, and I've spoken to many others, even in this time of of this global pandemic, which is a horrible thing and something that you would think is unacceptable and intolerable, I've seen record numbers of people recover. So I know God's in control of the outcomes. It's all going to unfold exactly as he sees fit. My acceptance is reliant on my ability to live with tolerance and love. And I find that I'm not as happy. I thought I would get happy when I get my way. I once thought that was the answer to happiness. And I found out "Mm, I'm not so happy when I get my way. But I am happy when I stop having a way. Right? It's not when I get my way. It's when I release myself from feeling attached to a way and how to get less sensitive about not getting my way sometimes it's about broadening my view trying to see things from another perspective considering other people's feelings and other times it's just about not having a way and in my prayers I seek to live in agreement I seek to live in agreement with God's way and um, thank you with that I will pass Thank you so much, Melissa, for expounding so thoroughly and beautifully on the topic of love and tolerance as our code. Your personal insights and experience are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Melissa's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. The share ID number for today's presentation, 15,876-1588. Seven, six. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star one to unmute. I need your first name, including the initial of your last name. Matt J. This is Larry K. Matt Ken K. Elizabeth D. Abby Abby Elizabeth S. D. Gotcha, Elizabeth D. Gotcha, Kathy K. Abby S. Abby. Who did I miss? There was someone after Matt that I missed. I have Matt, Larry, Elizabeth D, Kathy K, Abby S. Ken W H. Ken W H and Loretta. Excellent. That's a nice group to start with. Everybody, please mute. Matt J F will kick us off here. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. And Melissa, thank you so much for that presentation. Um, I love the practical tips. I picked up like three things I'm going to put to work in my life today. Um, My question is, do you think acceptance and love are the same? And if not, what do you see as being the difference between them? Because I've tried really hard and I just can't find any daylight between them. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Is love the same as acceptance? And if not, how is it different? Okay, um, hmm, that's an interesting. Thanks, Matt. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't. I don't. I think it's loving to be accepting, right? 
but I actually, I don't think it's the same because I have acceptance for lots of things I don't love, right? I mean, um, all I need to do is, like, work, you know, look into my workplace. And, um, you know, like on any given morning, right, the copy machine's broken, somebody, you know, someone does something, a kid doesn't bring their homework in, a parent complains about it, whatever it is. I might not love it. I might not feel great. You know, I walk in and there's no paper in the copy machine. or, But I have to accept it, right? I better, I mean, I'm, I better, like, quickly acknowledge, yep, this is happening, and then I have to find how to how to move on. Um, so I, I would say it's not exactly the same, but I would say in, um, in um, living it, right, I'm, I'm going to tap in to a loving source, even if it's not of my own, right? It might be my, my relationship with God. Might, I might ask God to show me love here, but I might not instinctively have it um, in that spot. So thanks. I hope that answers. Thank you, Matt. Larry Kay, you're up. Oh, good morning. Thanks, uh, Leah, for your service. And Melissa, what a what a first a quick comment and and very quickly to the question. You know, you you speak so so beautifully, um, and it's it's so authentic and, and sprinkled with with acceptance and down to earth and all that. And you're helping. Well, you're helping me this morning, that's for sure. And I I, I suspect a few others. Now the question. You know, um, I don't know if you noticed this, Melissa. Um, you know, I, I certainly notice it. I know you, you, you're very involved in the fellowship these days and uh, carrying a message of hope. There's, there's lots of, I don't think it's unique for this time, but there's lots of division at times. There's lots of division within the 12-step the, the rooms. There could be division in vision. <laughs> there could be division in all sorts of things. And so my question really is, in the midst of, of these divisions that have been going on for 90-some years at times, and, and they're still here today, um, how do you reconcile that personally or, or, or if you were to speak to someone who's seeing those divisions, whether it's a newcomer or what have you, they're hearing different things and people get upset about this thing or that thing. And, and how do you, within the, within the framework of what you're discussing this morning, how, how, how would you, could you speak to those divisions and how they, uh, and how you, you, you navigate through that, if that makes sense? It does. It does. Thanks, Larry. And it, it, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to think about. There's division everywhere I turn, right? Um, and so it is my, first of all, it's my responsibility to see both perspectives, to broaden my eyes a little bit, to see both perspectives. Um, it's also like, especially, you know, um, especially like in Overeaters Anonymous, right? I have to trust that God is responsible for bringing to me those who might be helped by me. And if somebody brings something to me that perhaps their sponsor said to them that they question or that they that they think is wrong or they want to hear my opinion, um, you know, I have to pause and hesitate. I have to I have to say, well, did God bring their feet to me? Uh, am I looking to be superior and say, you know, how I think I'm better? Um, so I, I know that I have to, like, exercise caution there um, and be careful. Um, if my desire is to be helpful, um, and then I, then I do have to speak my truth, but never in a way 
that shoots down something else that they may have heard from someone else who I believe had a sincere desire to be helpful as well. And I think, I know for myself, I think about many of the people along my path who said, you know, I had, I had a sponsor in the very beginning, my very first time walking into the rooms of World Readers Anonymous, who was of the strict, scary variety. And I learned a whole set of things from that particular woman that have still stayed with me today. And then I got some of the most kindest, softest, like, you know, let, kind of let me do whatever I want, one, one way other extreme. And I learned something from them as well. And I think, you know, if God is in charge, um, then the individual kind of gets what they need as they go along. And so I know my responsibility is not to put anybody else down. Um, it's just to carry my own unique brand, just to do it my own with the with what I found in the book, what speaks to me. And I trust in all areas, whether this is in my classroom too. There's different teachers with different philosophies. I have to trust God puts on my roster the kids who I'm supposed to teach. God, you know, God places before me those that I'm supposed to help. And um, if I do that and I keep my motives um, really to be useful, then um, then I feel like I, um, I'm okay. Um, thanks. I hope that helps. It does. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Elizabeth D., your turn. Hi, uh, Leah. Um, thank you for your service. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you, Melissa, um, so much for your share this morning. Um, yeah, and I took the share idea, and I'm going to be listening to it uh, again and again and sharing it with others. Um, it really was inspiring and very practical. And I'd like to tap into a little more of your practical experience, if I may, um, and have you drill a little deeper into family relationships and practicing love and tolerance with a teenager. You have a 19-year-old. Um, mine is 17, uh, a girl, and um, yikes, <laughs> she's my greatest teacher. I have understood the concept. She's not, I'm, she's not my sponsee. I get that. Um, uh, and with interpersonal issues with friends, I don't give advice. I've learned through the, the, you know, I listen, I do not fix. But I got to tell you, we are arguing all the time. I know that a lot of this is because the nest here is getting very tight. But I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about how you use the 11th step, perhaps, when you were going through this time with your teenager. When, when I was going through or when I am going through? <laughs> when I am, because, you know, like, I, I've got two. One's 19, and so she's, she's now a little bit more independent in some ways. And now the 13-year-old has sort of stepped in and begin to fill that, you know. And so what I, what, yes, my 11-step practice is huge in this, huge. I have a, um, I have, I'll tell you, I got a prayer for that, you know. Like I, I, um, I have very specific prayers for for my children, for my family relations, and and I, you know, and there are prayers that I that I've written, that I've put together myself. They're not just like scripted prayers um, that I've written and I've pieced together and I've shared with other other people who might be struggling with this. Um, yeah, I pray. I ask God to to help me. Sometimes it means I have to be quiet. I have to, you know, because there's if you're arguing, there's two people, and 
the best way to, to, to stop arguing with your teen is to stop arguing, right? It is I can't make her stop. I can't make him stop. So sometimes I just get quiet. You know, I'll just, just like I said, when someone wants to argue about what they will and won't do with program, same thing with the kids. I can, I can lovingly, so here's one of my prayers. I ask God to give me the strength to, to lovingly discipline and set boundaries and guidelines and then give me the strength to live in agreement with those boundaries and guidelines and then give me the tolerance to live with the discomfort I feel when my kids are not happy with me, right? So I might set a boundary and, and I'm not, I'm not perfect at this, Elizabeth, by any means, um, and then I have to be comfortable when they have, like, a little little fit over my, yeah, no, I'm sorry, you're not going to, no, I'm not, no, no, I'm sorry. You know, like, I just sort of say it. Um, and they're unhappy, and I have to be okay. Um, and then there's lots of things that I've just had to let go of, you know, and does it look like I don't care? Does it look like they're running amok? Maybe, maybe. But um, I can't care more about their grades than they do, right? <laughs> I can't. It's going to be their future. Now, some of the consequences that they're going to face are going to be natural consequences. When there's nothing mom can do about that, the natural consequences will unfold. And I think I'm going to let, in some aspects, I decide to let the natural consequences be their, be their teacher. And I'll just continue to love them. Um, thanks. I hope that helps, Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth D. Kathy K. Star One Ton Mute. Thank you, Leah, for your continuing service. And thanks, Melissa C. It was wonderful to hear you on this topic today. I want to ask a question returning to the issue of tolerance with our spouses um, because I. I feel like I've improved a lot on this during my journey to recovery, but I notice, too, that as I get older, um, I have trouble just accepting what I see in my husband as being um, self-destructive behavior, and I realize that's my judgment of him. Um, and I'm also concerned about, um, uh, you know, not wanting to control him or think I'm better than he is. So I do a lot of 10 steps around this. And still, I, I find it hard to get to a place of acceptance sometimes. And I'm wondering if you have any good ideas about what else we can do because those are probably the toughest relationships to practice tolerance in, at least for me. Absolutely, me too, me too. And yeah, it's a work in progress. Thank God for the tenth step, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and for a reset. And just like I said, I got a prayer for. I pray. I do a lot of praying over that. And I realize for me a lot of that. Um, you know, I I. I had a reset, right, for my own physical health, 
my my own physical health was going all the way in one horrific direction, and he was my partner through that entire time, right? And then all of a sudden, like like flipped a switch, and my everything is different now. And that's for me, might not be for him. Um, and so some of those unhealthy habits, he still does, and some of them he doesn't as much because he doesn't have this partner doing it with him. Um, I can just be a demonstration. And I know for myself a lot of what I was feeling when I was judging, if I scratched the surface, it was fear. I'm afraid of the negative consequences that might come his way um, if he continues to live unhealthily, right? And furthermore, how's it going to affect me? How's it going to hurt me? How's this going to work when it comes time to retire? And he's not capable <laughs> if. And then I have to realize, um, let's not, let's not, let's not leave today, right? Let's just stay in today. Um, and for today, everybody's working just fine. Everybody's just fine. And if I am overly uncomfortable and intolerant and I can't feel any comfort or ease with it, I do a 10-step and I go for a nice long walk, right? And I come back. Um, and one of the, my practices that I do is I try to look at the people like, you know, like Where's Waldo? Like you can look at those Where's Waldo posters um, and find like lots of other things to distract us. But what you're really looking for is Waldo, that little guy, that striped guy. Well, if I can look at my family, like I'm going to look for the good. Um, and it's a, and it's a practice. I must, I must, and it's a discipline and it's a practice. So after I take this really long walk, it's my job to come in and look for like all the wonderful, healthy, beneficial ways that that we're both living. And um, thanks. We'll just keep working it, Kathy, imperfectly. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy K, for your question. Abby S. Star one to unmute. Hi, Melissa. Um, thank you so much for your share, and thank you, Leah, for the service. Um, my name is Abby S. Um, I have a question about the resentment and intolerance, and when you feel that judgment, um, do you consider that to be a harm's done? I'm doing another fourth step, and I've been in program for a while, so there's not really like a lot of like I've been cleaning up as I go, but I'm doing um, another four step and looking at my harms done. And if I were to write down, um, you know, putting her down in my head or, you know, blaming in my head or criticizing or be, being judgmental, would you consider those to be harms done? Um, if it, if you wear it on your face like I do, of course, right? If it's if it's in if it's in the way you you know for me look I can be judgmental and you can feel it just in the way that I put the dishes away in the cabinet right I'm tolerating the fact that nobody did their job and I'm going to put them away I'm not saying anything but you know it right so um, probably yeah I don't know that I would necessarily go to people and say by the way I've been judging you and um, you know because um, that that. I think it's more the demonstration of of showing up with with and just like I said but like earlier like my family says I make a certain face when they're eating things I got to work on that I got to work on my poker face um 
you know, um, so yeah, I, I I would say if if they're if they're feeling it, yeah, yeah. So I guess how do you know if they're feeling it? <laughs> um, well, st- why don't, how about how about stop doing it and see if there's a change, right? Okay. See if you can. Mm-hmm. What if you can put a big, great big smile on your face when, um, when people are doing the things that disturb you. You know, see if you can start practicing looking for the for the good in them. See if there, there's not a change there. That might, um, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Abby, for your question. Ken W H, your turn. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and uh, Melissa, uh, just wonderful to hear you. have such a, <laughs> an easy voice to listen to. Uh, and if you started today with a sincere desire to be helpful, you have succeeded extraordinarily. You have been very helpful. Thank you. Um, and you, you may have answered this question to some degree, but I'm going to put the two words together. I haven't heard it in a question. The difference between, or for you, uh, how you see acceptance uh, and tolerance, uh, the distinction uh, for you. That would just be helpful. Thanks. Sure. I think, um, I, I wonder, I really, I guess I would have to think some more about that, maybe look it up and really think about it. I, I think, I think I got acceptance, maybe I got acceptance first and then tolerance. I'm not sure. You know, can I? I think I'm. I think I have to think about that more before I just give an answer. If I give an answer, I, I think I would just be um, maybe backtracking it later. Thanks for giving. I'm going to definitely think about it. <laughs> you can call me later. Maybe I'll uh, have an answer. Thank you, Ken. We'll ponder on that. Loretta H. Your turn. Good morning. Yes. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Melissa. What a beautiful, beautiful digestive and reflective share on love and tolerance. My question is, you started out at the beginning talking about the identity of the separateness, and I just wanted, and this is for me, I just, because I've always felt like that, but I want to know that do you wake up in the morning and feel that separateness and then the powerlessness and then ask God to bring it to you, you know, with the work? Or when you go into a situation, do you um, see that separateness and then also try to bring the program and your practice into the situation? Is that confusing? Like, because I, I see it all the time in me, and I do, with the program, try to bring it to, you know, the powerlessness and then bring it to the work I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think, um, you know, I love the idea that it, on one hand, it's a separateness. Um, I, I love the other idea that it's a uniqueness, that it's a distinction, that it's... Um, you know, and and actually, this very defining factor for me um, helps me be 
a better, like, citizen of the world, I think. Because I have this very distinct way that I have to live, I have this very distinct way that I get to live, right? So, you know, and I'm thinking specifically about my workplace, um, that um, I, I, because I am someone who has to live in agreement with um, with food sobriety, with a certain guiding set of principles, with a certain way, um, I have to bring a certain um, a certain energy into my work environment. So um, I work in a building where everybody is generally really mad about the circumstances, our work conditions, our present circumstances. And in the in the land of fair and just, they are 100% right, right? But because I'm a distinct entity who, by the way, gets to live, right, in the world of the spirit, I've got a code that's not fair and just. I can't fight for that. I have to have love and tolerance. Um, and so I, I get to, I'm a distinct and separate entity, I have to, and I get to. I get to show up with a different with a different demeanor, with a different attitude, which may or may not attract different people in the workplace. Um, and so I, I see it not so much as separate as like a chore, but as a gift, right? It, it's God, God has given us, us a very unique gift. Um, thanks. Hope that helps. Thank you, Loretta. Okay, we have time for about two more questions. Star one to unmute if you have a question. Two more. Katie G. Sandy W. Katie G. Sandy W. That's who I heard. Katie G. Go right ahead with your question. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service, Melissa. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I just want to hear you talk more about this. I, there's a quote that says, um, we leave program one judgment at a time. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that and how you stay uh, healthy with that uh, thinking. Thanks. Mm, yeah. Oh, gosh. I knew you'd ask me a tough one, Katie, <laughs> or one that I get to think about. Yeah, I, yeah, we do. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I think the quickest way for me to return to the food is if I get self-righteous and judgmental. And I know, like, I, I, I spoke about it briefly before about, like, social media. And, and, and I had to put myself on, um, like, a media, social media and news um, plan, almost like a food plan, where just like I had to avoid because I felt myself getting judgmental. And I know that, you know, not far behind, I would be leaving my program because in a minute I'm judging everybody. Nobody is as perfect as, you know, as, as, as me in my mind when I start living that way. Um, and, and, yeah, so how, how do I apply this in its practical terms is, um, well, you know, um, as far as like family, um, yeah, I reserve judgment. That's God's job, not my job. Um, as far as like the news and the world, 
I have to be really specific about what I allow, you know, to be, um, to take up space in my mind and my brain, just like um, what foods I allow myself to eat, like what um, what things I allow myself to watch and listen to. Um, so, you know, like news, I have a time limit on. It's it's And for one, there was a period of time when it was just too painful and too upsetting and too whatever for me to watch at all. And I actually had to abstain entirely. I I put my husband in charge of disseminating important information to me at one point. Um, and I just said to him, um, could when he came home from work every day, I would just say to him, um, can you tell me if there was anything crucial that happened in the world today that I need to know? And he would tell me, and then that would be it. And I would say, okay, thank you. Um, and... Um, and so that that's one of the ways that I can live, you know, in the practical application. Because yeah, if I start living in judgment, um, the food will, the food and and relapse, I believe, is like waiting for me. Um, thanks. Thank you, Katie G. Our final question comes from Sandy W. Oh, thanks, Leah. Thanks so much for your service. And uh, Melissa, wow, what a powerful share. I've got a lot to think about um, even before we got to the questions. Um, so my question is, I don't think it'll be so tough. You mentioned um, when one of your, I think it was in relation to one of your children coming to you with a problem um, that you asked them, and I thought this was so wise, um, that you'll ask them, you know, do you want my feedback or do you want just for me to um, be here to, to support you in this, in this problem? And when they come back with a kind of snappy remark, which has certainly been my experience, um, of give me what you got, mom, or whatever, I forget how you phrased it, what, what do you say to them, that, to them then? I'm just curious. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yes, yeah, so and what my, what my kids will say, my, I can even picture my daughter's face and she says it. No, tell me, tell me. I want to hear what you have to say. And it's like, oh, no, she doesn't. Um, and um, I just, I listen. I just, I let her say it like that with that energy. And then I say, I usually say, I love you so much, Riley. Oh, my gosh, I just love you mm -hmm. so much. And you know what? I know that you are going to be able to figure this out. I, I just know it. I have a feeling that that you'll that you'll figure out the right answer. And I, gosh, I just love you. That's it. And it is hard, but I do really love her, right? And and what I need to remind myself, I, I was I was a hot mess at that age. You know, I was a, I was a mess from the time I was my early teens. I did all sorts of crazy you know, hurtful, dangerous, crazy, addictive things. And, you know, thank you, God, I was spared, I was saved. So I'm just going to have to trust, um, you know, and I, I did not have a, a parent in recovery. So hopefully my kids will benefit, right? They'll, they'll get a, an example. Um, but I just, yeah, I usually just tell them that I love them and I know that, that God is with them. Um, that's what I also always tell my kids. I always remind them that there is this incredible power that resides inside them, just like it resides in me, and that God is with them. And God, you know, and with God, they'll be able to figure it out. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Sandy W. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. 
And, of course, thank you, Melissa, for giving so much of yourself today. Always enjoyable, always appreciated, always helpful. Thank you so very much for a rich, profound presentation. Share ID today, 15,876. That's 15876. And we're now going to close from page 164. Of course, you know it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.